say believe. believe believe is a really big word i mean it's a it's a big big word we talked about the fact last week that everything that we're about as a church as the the tribe of faith if you will hinges on what we believe and we we kind of reminded ourselves that the gospel the good news of jesus is really captured beautifully and just about perfectly in John chapter 3 verse 16. Of course it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would never die but would have eternal life. So based on that fact from God's word, you you know that what you believe really, really matters. What we believe ultimately has eternal consequences. It, it ripple effects out into eternity. Tell your neighbor right now, that's a big deal. Okay, this group right here was awesome. The rest of y'all, come on now. Say it like you mean it. Tell them again, that's a big deal. It is a huge, huge deal. But as big a deal as what we believe is, it is only validated as far as how we behave. That is a big deal as well. So it's one thing to say, I believe in God. But it's another thing to back it up with how we behave. Amen. Thank you so much. I love that right there. That gets the preacher fired up. Now, several months ago, I was grilling at home. We, we grill a lot in our household. We eat a lot of, of meat and fish. And, and I was really working on keeping the fire at a certain temperature so that it didn't char the salmon that was on the grill at that time. And I had started the fire and really got it going and hot. And then I had to kind of bring it back down a little bit. And I, I got the fire going close the lid, and then to get the temperature down to where I wanted it, I had to close all of the vents on the top and below to kind of choke out the oxygen to the fire. And I sat there drinking my Topo Chico, waiting for the temperature to come down. How many of y'all know about Topo Chico? Okay, just checking to make sure. If you drink Perrier or Pellegrino or any of that stuff from Europe, you are missing out. You just got to go to Mexico for good sparkling water. But anyway, I digress. I'm serious. I take Topo Chico over Pellegrino every day and twice on Sunday. But as the temperature was coming down, I noticed it getting right into that kind of sweet spot between about 425 and 450 where I wanted it to be. And I walked over to the grill and I, I had brought the salmon out, had the olive oil on it. It was ready to go. I set it there on the little shelf beside the grill. And when I raised the lid... 
a fireball of biblical proportions came shooting out of the grill at me. And then I heard this little... I thought, that was a weird noise. It was like radio static. And then it hit me. That was the the tips of my hair singeing and burning. I looked on my arm that I had raised the hood of the grill with. Every hair on my arm was charred. Then I started to kind of get the, the aroma of singed hair. And I was like, whoa. And I did like this. And all of my eyebrows were singed off. I mean, it was like, and they had these little buds on the end of it where the fire had kind of just, had like just melted the end of it. I was like, whoa, note to self, don't do that no more. And I realized that apparently when the temperature was coming down and and the the air was choked off, it had built up pressure inside the hood of that grill. Some of you are thinking, no kidding, stupid. I didn't know. And I made myself a mental note to always open the vent before opening the hood. Fast forward to this past Friday night, my wife and children are out of town together. They were all gathered up for a family shindig in Mississippi, and we were FaceTiming each other, and I was talking to them as I was getting ready for dinner by myself, a sad prospect in and of itself. But I was getting ready for dinner, and Julie is there with Emily and Joseph, and we're chatting chatting it up, and I go, hold on just a second, I have to put the fish on the grill. Set it down, and I raise the hood, and I hear screams from inside my phone, Dad, are you okay? And then I said, hold on, it's a traumatic experience, I'm just telling you. The first time is traumatic, the second time you're like, you're an idiot, you did it again. (laughs) But here's the point of the whole story. I knew not to do that, and yet I did it again. I wonder this morning, in the privacy of this auditorium and later online for a worldwide audience, how many of us would admit to knowing when you shouldn't do something but doing it anyway? Is that, am I the only one? Amen. And sometimes, I, I get it, thank you. I'm teasing, that's awesome. I, I, listen, I, I know, I know that, that it, it's kind of, you, you laugh and go, oh, look, I can kind of see some of the charred remains even this morning. I don't, I don't know how really high quality these cameras are, but if you got a really close up, you'd be like, ooh. I, I, I kind of just, you know, brushed off. Here's the amazing thing, too. That night later, when I got in the shower and, and kind of got cleaned up from grilling and the kitchen was clean and everything was put in its place and I got in the shower to clean up the chef, all of a sudden when that water started hitting my hair and my body, I got a whole nother scent of burned, singed hair all over again. But I think that is an incredibly accurate representation for what happens in our lives when we know we shouldn't do something and we do it anyway, or when we know that we should do something and we don't do it over and over again. And particularly during these chaotic days and months in which you and I live, we have an incredible opportunity as the church to to be an example to to let how we behave validate what we believe. 
And, and it's very important, I think, that you understand something that's not being said when I say that. What we believe is valid all the time, no matter what. God is God. You don't even necessarily have to believe it. It's still true. It's still the reality of it. Whether you believe it or not doesn't change God. It changes us. But when I say that how we behave validates what we believe, what I mean is we prove to the people around us that we actually believe what we say we believe. And that is critical because we will introduce people to the perfect, unconditional, eternity-altering love of God mostly by what they see in and through our lives. If you go to work and steal office supplies and cheat on your expense reports and then invite somebody to come to church, they're going to be like, yeah, I'm good, thanks. If they come over to your house and see you kick the dog and yell at your kids, they're going to be like, yeah, I don't think I need to be a part of that church. Thanks a lot. What we believe validates how we behave. And this is so important, especially during an election season that is whack-a-doodle-doo. For the last few weeks, we've been in this series, We the People, and I've been able to, to start this sermon, these past two sermons, with a little anecdote or some statistics that we could kind of chuckle at and say, oh, whoo, it is crazy out there. And then along comes this week. Y'all, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I, I'm just slap out of gas. I, you know, it boggles the mind. And yet, here we are. And yet, this is our moment to shine as we the people, as the tribe of faith, the bride of Christ, we get to make a massive difference in this world. We talked last week about the fact that we are to be people of hope. And our hope is based on the fact of our justification, the fact that God has justified us in Christ. We are made right, declared right with God, that it is an event that happens at the moment we step into a personal relationship with him. But today I want us to take another step as we kind of dive a little deeper and we get into how we behave from a, from a spiritual and a theological standpoint. I want to introduce to you a, another critical component of the Christian faith. If you've got your Bibles with you, whether it's an old school book version Bible or maybe you got it on your phone, I want you to look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this passage of scripture that is again explaining how our gospel, how this good news gets lived out, how it plays out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23. I want you to do so. We haven't done this in a long time. But there are going to be some highlighted words in this verse. I want you to say it out loud like you mean it. Like this first row down here means it and says amen. All right? Read these words with me, the highlighted words when I get to them. Check this out. The Bible says, may God himself, the God of peace. Does anybody have too much peace in your life? Is there too much peace in our country right now? I didn't think so. May God himself, the God of peace, say it with me. Sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless 
at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May God sanctify you. Now, sanctify, doesn't that just sound like a great church word? So, some of you are thinking, man, we're, we're, getting, we're getting church this morning. Sanctify is a great church word. I want you to tell your neighbor with passion and enthusiasm, get you some sanctification. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, does it? But, but when we talk about sanctification, it's imperative. It is so important that you understand, that I understand, this is a huge part of the Christian faith. A huge part. The word sanctification simply means this. The process of being set apart for holiness or, or divine purposes. The process of being set apart for holiness or divine purposes. So we come to faith in Christ. When a person says, I will follow Jesus, I confess my sins, and I surrender my life to Christ, that is the becoming a Christian moment. And in that moment, we know that we are justified. We're declared right with God. A a huge moment in any life. But then we begin a process called sanctification. And sanctification is the process that every single Christ follower is in. We are in process as followers of Christ to be made holy, to be made morally righteous and perfect like God. Now that's not to be made a God or to become a God. That's a big distinction. But we are being made holy. We are on our way as the Holy Spirit does the work of sanctification in our lives. And the work of sanctification means that we begin more and more to resemble the character and the nature of God, which, by the way, is the whole reason we were created. Remember, in the beginning, God created, and he created male and female in his image in his image. So the first thing we're supposed to do is to represent the character and the nature of God. We're not made to look like God physically. We know that God is spirit. But we resemble, we, re- we reflect the character and the nature of God. And so as we are sanctified, we are becoming more and more like him. So What we do, how we behave, the words that we say, the thoughts that we we entertain and allow to kind of kick back in the lazy boy recliner of our minds, the way that we, we treat the people closest to us, the way that we treat people we've just met, the way that we treat waiters in a restaurant, the way that we treat teachers at school, the way we talk about teachers at school, the way we talk about people in authority, all of these things are reflective of the work of sanctification in our lives. Now, some of you are thinking, man, what does this have to do with the election? What does this have to do with with we the people? Well, I am so glad that you asked, because the fact of the matter is, This sanctification process that God has begun in his people, he is using 
to impact and change the world. He's using us to be different on Facebook than the people who post their political rants and screeds tearing each other's heads off. He's using us to be, to be different in the way that we approach the privilege and the responsibility of electing our officials. He's perfecting and sanctifying the way that we respond to those who are in office and occupy those places of authority over us. It is this sanctifying work that he is doing in us and through us that he wants to use in this fallen, fallible, imperfect world. And to get at this, we're going to go back to the Old Testament, to a verse that I referenced a couple of weeks ago, but we want to really drill down into Jeremiah chapter number 29. In Jeremiah 29, God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel. At this moment, they are in captivity. They're enslaved in a foreign land. And God is using this period of captivity or or exile to remind Israel that they are his chosen people, that that he wants to, to bless them and to use them in this world. Remember when Israel was founded, God said to Abraham, I will make of your family a massive nation. Your, your children will be so many that they will outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. And that is what became the nation of Israel. And God, if you'll remember, also promised to Abraham, he said, through your family, I will bless the entire world. And Israel is the vehicle of that blessing. But at this particular moment during the life of Jeremiah, Israel was having a tough time being a blessing because they were enslaved because of their own idol worship, because of their own corruption, because of their own debauchery. God had decided that they needed to be humbled in order to be used. And here's what he says to Israel in the midst of this this exile and this enslavement. He tells them, work. Everybody say work. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Check this out. Read it with me. For its welfare will determine your welfare. What? God, these people are enslaving us. We we are captives here in Babylon. What are you talking about? Their welfare, work for the welfare, pray for the welfare of Babylon? Are you joking me right now? Babylon. Whenever you read the word Babylon biblically, I just want you to do a little mental verbal equation. Babylon equals Vegas. Babylon equals Vegas. What happened in Babylon stayed in Babylon. What happened... In battle, it was completely, not just immoral, it was amoral. I mean, they didn't have a moral clue in the world. Whatever you could dream up, party-wise, sexually, in any way, shape, or form, man, Babylon was where it happened. And yet here God is commanding Israel, hey, I want you to work for the for the peace and the prosperity 
of this Middle Eastern Las Vegas. I, I want you to work and, and to remember to pray for the welfare of Babylon. Now, I, I don't have to cite a lot of statistics or, or numbers or even examples and anecdotes, I, but I think we could all agree that here in the United States of America in 2016, we have definitely some, some vestiges of Babylon in our world. We, we, we have some reminders of that kind of stuff on a regular basis, and yet it is exactly because of that that we need to adopt this mindset, this heart set about the city, about the community, about the nation where we live. And you and I have the opportunity, and I believe with everything I have, the responsibility to work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where we live, to pray for the welfare of everybody in our city, because its welfare will determine our welfare. This is, this is our responsibility from God, before God, and for God. It's why we're here. And so in a very real way, we, the people of Christ, we're about welfare reform. Not from a, a governmental political side, but from a personal, relational, day in and day out side. There, there are four parts of this political, of this spiritual welfare reform that, that I want to just mention to you so that you and I can remember this is what we're about. This is what we're supposed to do because last week we talked about hope and the fact that we are people of hope means we are people of action. It, it's not enough to just go, man, I hope everything works out. Go get them, tiger. We've got to do something about it. The first element of welfare reform is vitality. As followers of Christ, we're to bring vitality into our workplace, into our schools. We're to be people who bring life everywhere we go so that the people go, man, I don't know what kind of coffee she's drinking in the morning, but I want some of that. A vitality. I, I think part of vitality is joy. I had the opportunity recently to speak to a, a, a large insurance agency here in town. And, and it was an incredibly, incredible event and, and a great, it was fun for me because it was really different than what I normally get to do. So it was kind of a change of pace. It was great. But I noticed something really significant as they had, they had one session before I was speaking and I was kind of standing outside the room and they broke, take a little comfort break before the preacher got up to speak. I think they were worried I was going to go for about an hour and a half. So they let everybody go to the restroom and then come back in. But I noticed every single person in this agency coming out of this room where they had been in meetings all morning long, they were smiling and laughing still. They, they, they were talking to each other on their way to get more coffee or go to the restroom. And then as they came back into the room, there, there was so much lively noise and chatter and talk. These people, 85 of them or so, they, they, they were so excited to be at work together. Some of you are going, oh, that'd be so awesome. But I think as Christians, we ought to bring that kind of vitality to where we work, to, to where we go to school, the teams that we play on, that we bring a life and an energy with us because of the hope that we have in Christ. There's that vitality 
And and he says in, in Jeremiah, work for the peace and the prosperity. Work for it. Make effort. Do something. Don't just be a good guy or a good girl, but work for it. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? And it was interesting. Some of you, when I say insurance agency, some of you go, man, that, that would be, that'd have to be some of the most boring work in the world. Filing claims, taking phone calls, talking to agents, blah, 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 blah. But I noticed as I got to visit with them, the people at this agency anyway, they saw what they were doing as creating security and comfort for their clients. They, they, saw, they saw a real significant value add that they were able to provide. And, and I was able to tell them, say, listen, because you do what you do, I can sleep at night and do what I do. I, I don't worry about lightning hitting the church and you know, burning up the roof. I, I know that we'll be taken care of because of what you do day in and day out. That, that's a massive service. That's a massive value. It's incumbent upon those of us who follow Christ to figure out why we do what we do from an eternal perspective as well as a temporal day in and day out perspective. You have the opportunity. I have the opportunity to discover that value and figure it out, but then bring it with vitality and life day in and day out. The second part of welfare reform is serenity. Serenity. Tell your neighbor right now with passion and enthusiasm, cool out. Just just cool out. Everybody do this for me real quick. Everybody sit up straight. Sit up, you know, put, put your lower back against the bottom of that chair and now do this. Doesn't that feel great? I, I know, I know this is, that's not a profound spiritual point, but it is a profound spiritual exercise. Just, just take a deep, cleansing breath and cool out. We are to be people of peace, serenity. The, the peace of the city where God has sent us into exile. We're strangers in a foreign land, but our peace is the peace that passes all understanding. Our peace is rooted in the victory of Christ over death. There's nothing that we will encounter that he can't handle. So we're people of of peace and serenity. We've already established that we're going to be people of work. We're going to be people who help, who add value. We're also going to be people of serenity, people of peace. Number three, we're going to be people of clarity, clarity. And this is is going to be tough in the world in which you and I live. It means that we're going to be people like Jesus, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. I said at the very beginning that God is God whether I believe in him or not or you do or not. God's going to be God, period. He will reign eternally. There will come a point at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, where his authority will be acknowledged and undeniable. That, that, that's reality. That's truth. 
And, and so as people of Christ, we, we have to be people of clarity. We've got to know that what God says biblically is what's real. It's, it's what anchors reality and truth in this world. And so we have to be people who will not, not sit idly by as confusion and chaos and uncertainty and untruth is politicized, elevated, and celebrated in the world in which we live. We've got to be willing to know what we believe and then be able to communicate it in grace and in love. We've got to be people who bring clarity. We've got to be people who are willing to invest and engage in the political process. I pray, I pray that right now God is raising up committed, faithful middle school and high school students that we will be able to vote for in a generation. That that some young people will see public service exactly as that, as a service. And they will be people who bring clarity, people who share the truth of God in their work. I thank God for those who are currently in public service who are already doing that. Not people who stand up and try to make this a Christian nation. <laughs> hey, we're not a Christian nation. We're not. We were founded by a lot of Christians and some deists who were not Christians. And we were founded on for sure Christian principles and we are a country that allows a diversity and plurality of beliefs, and that's good and healthy and right. And as people of faith, we've got to be willing to stand up for our faith, to stand up for our beliefs, and not impose them on other people, but declare them because we've earned the right to be heard and they trust us because of what they've seen in our lives. We're going to be people of clarity. But then the other thing that Jeremiah 29 tells us is to, to work for the peace and the prosperity of the city in which God has sent us to exile. Prosperity, meaning we take care of everybody. It's not just a, a chosen few, but as the people of faith, we work hard to share what God has shared with us. Now, this is a spiritual thing, not a political thing. It has political implications and ramifications, to be sure. But as the people of faith, it's our responsibility to do everything that we can to share the shalom of God, the, the completeness and the wholeness and the wellness of God with everybody in our community. I, I love what Whitney said in the video setting up our, our time of tithing and offering this morning. Mobile Loaves and Fishes is a massive part of who we are as a church family. Some of you may not even know that not only do we send out two trucks every single day, but as a church we are committed significantly to the Community First Project that is creating a, a community for chronically homeless to have a place to belong, a place to live. By the time we've completed our commitment as a church family, you and I, 
will have given $200,000 to make that a reality, to be one of the leaders of that effort in our community. I don't tell you that to pat ourselves on the back, but you need to know what we're doing. You need to know what you're doing when you bring God's tithe, when you make an offering, you're helping to bring the shalom of God to people who don't yet know it. That's a big deal. So all of these things are part of the sanctifying process that we are in the midst of that begin in a relationship with Christ. So we the people is a lot bigger than the preamble to the Constitution. We the people means that we the people of faith are representing accurately the character and the nature of God in this land into which God has sent us in exile. We are in this world, but we're not of it. And we're a blessing to this world. We are people of hope, we're people of help, and we're people of honor. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment, if you would, please. And in this moment, I want us to just pray two things. We're going to pray that God would make us people of help. People who are working for and praying for the shalom, the prosperity, the wholeness of the city where we live, of the nation where we live. But then we're going to pray for the shalom of our nation. Together individually, but also personally. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize the gospel, the good news, the, the truth and reality of Jesus. And Father, this morning together as a church family, we surrender anew our lives. We surrender this church to your sanctifying process in us collectively and in us individually. And Father, in this moment, we do pray for our nation. Father, we pray for the peace and the prosperity of this country that you have blessed. We pray for the peace and the prosperity of the people in this nation. And God, ask that you would use us whether through a, a truck run with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on it 
or in a conversation with a coworker or student that we would be the pipeline, that we would be the vehicle of shalom, of peace and restoration in the sphere of influence that you have given to us. Father, we ask this prayer in the name of Jesus, the one who makes it possible for us to know you, to love you, and to be used by you. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.